0: I'd like to just take a moment and read the gospel lesson from Luke chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, if you turn to your New Testament, it's page 58 in the Pew Bibles. If you brought another text, I'm reading out of the English Standard Version this morning. It is December 1st, and it is a time in which our minds and hearts start turning towards Christmas, and I hope this morning that we can begin a four-week sermon series on really looking at the purpose of Christmas and what joy to the world actually means. What it means that God comes into this world to give us true joy. The text out of Luke's Gospel says that in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And this was the first registration when Quirinius was a governor of Syria. And everyone went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth in Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was in the house and the lineage of of David. He went to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with a child. And while they were there, the time gave for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn." Now I know that everyone has a favorite Christmas movie. Christmas movies sort of make it a little easier for me because of the fact that so often when we talk about pop culture or cultural icons, I have no idea what people are talking about. But one month a year, it all reverses because we watch all the Christmas movies over and over in our house, and because of the fact that movies, not only do you see them once, but Christmas movies, you kind of rewatch them every year. Do you have that tradition in your family? And I bet you all have a favorite movie. Let's hear some of your favorite Christmas movies. Wonderful Life. Wonderful Life. White Christmas. I heard Miracle on 34th Street. Any other favorite movies? Scrooge, somebody said. Well, the slide went up a little prematurely, but I wonder if any of you can guess Regina's favorite Christmas movie. Do you recognize it? You got it. National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Not exactly what I would have thought to be my wife's favorite movie, but it is. She watches it. She laughs. I can take her in the middle of July and say National Lampoon Christmas Vacation, and she bursts into laughter. If you haven't seen it, or if you have, it is the story of the Griswolds. Clark, or his wife affectionately calls him Sparky Griswold in particular, trying to create the perfect Christmas. Now, I have a theory that behind every Christmas movie, no matter how silly it is, if you really look, you can find some really amazing, powerful illustrations and points out of that. That includes National Lampoon Christmas Vacation. Sparky Griswold is trying to create, hear me, create the perfect Christmas. He's trying to do it on his own willpower. So he goes out, and if you've seen it, everything ends up being a mess, but he goes out to cut the perfect Christmas tree. He decides to decorate his home with, yes, you got it, 25,000 lights. We know that because at one point he says he has 250 strands, there's 100 lights in a strand, so we just extrapolate 000, or 25,000 lights. And, of course, he spent his Christmas bonus way before he gets it in anticipation of the fact that he can just do something awesome for his family. He's going to put in this amazing pool, and he's gone into incredible debt waiting for that bonus to come. The entire point is he thinks he can create the perfect Christmas, And therein lies the problem. We may not live National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, but still we do live National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation because people try all the time on their own willpower to create the perfect Christmas experience. They try to buy the perfect gift. They try to have the perfect home decorated a particular way. They try to do absolutely everything possible during the holidays. And in the midst, what do we do when we do that? We make ourselves nuts and crazy. It's interesting that it's not only at the holidays that this happens, it can happen to people throughout the year, but it just seems to be heightened at the holidays. So if you enter December with a little bit of stress and a knot in your stomach, you're in the right place because we're here this morning to realize we cannot create that. We cannot on our own, with our own willpower, figure out how to make everything be perfect and right and work for everyone else and make everybody happy with us and put on the perfect feast and make everybody satisfied and like the meal, do I get an amen? Amen. We can't do it. In and of ourselves, when we try to take that on, we become Sparky Griswold. And as you'll hear, even as I give you a few illustrations out of that movie, Things did not work out too well for him as long as he was focusing on his own willpower. And that's why when you think of Christmas and you think of the holiday that we're entering into, please remember the Christmas story out of Luke's Gospel. Because it is a complete contrast to this idea that somehow we have to will it ourselves or force it ourselves or make it happen on our own willpower. And as I read Luke's gospel, the first thing I realize is if we're going to have joy at the holidays or any time in our life, we need to learn what Mary and Joseph learned, and that is our powerlessness. Our powerlessness. Our utter inability to be able to control things around us. And as we try to control things around us, again, we just drive ourselves nuts. Thus our text says, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria and all went to be registered, each to his own town. It was just 27 years before the birth of our Savior that Augustus had defeated his enemies and unified the Roman Empire. And now you can imagine the power that Caesar Augustus wielded. He had taken the very people who had unfortunately killed his great uncle, Julius Caesar, and he had sought revenge. And now everybody knew who was in control. He declared, in fact, Julius Caesar to be God, and so Augustus called himself a son of God. He didn't quite want to arise to the power of of being the most important. So he said, well, yeah, there is something a little greater than me. But on this earth, he declared to anyone in the empire that they better watch out for him because he was now in control. He was, because of that, the emperor of peace. But his peace did not come because of his diplomatic skills. It came because of the sword and his ability to put down his enemies. In his own lifetime, he forbid a statue of him to be built, but immediately upon his death, he had ordered this huge statue that is so often famously seen that was just north of Rome that depicted him as a great warrior king who had brought peace to the empire. And now, in Judea, first century Jews like Mary and Joseph knew they were powerless They were utterly powerless. This young couple who had realized that God had a plan and a purpose for their life, who were having these plans to be married, and now found through this amazing divine encounter that she was pregnant and going to have a child, were told that they had to journey to Bethlehem. No matter how much they would have wanted things to be different There was nothing in Mary and Joseph or any first century Jew living in Judea that let them think that they were in control. Caesar Augustus had made that very clear. And now with the declaration of this census, everyone's lives were completely upset and people had to do exactly what the Roman emperor declared. That's again why I like to think of our friend Sparky or Clark Griswold. In the movie National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, he thought he had power and control, and so in his own words, he said, I am here to create a fun, old-fashioned family Christmas. Which, of course, every single thing that he did became anything but fun, other than for those of us who watched it. Unfortunately, he had 25,000 Christmas lights, but he couldn't even get them to turn on. His large bonus that he was waiting for, remember that I said he w- had spent the bonus ahead of time? He thought that he knew what he was going to get and he had control over his boss's giving him his bonus. There's all kinds of antics that go around that with him talking to his boss, reminding him what important employee he is, making sure the boss gets a Christmas card. Ended up to be nothing more than a membership in the Jelly of the Month Club. Poor Sparky discovers in the movie What Mary and Joseph already knew, and all of us need to understand, we're powerless. Thinking we have control of life only makes life worse. Now, don't take me wrong. We have control over three things, me, myself, and I. We all have control over that. But when we start thinking we can change things for others or make others conform to our image or our will or our thoughts or somehow create some experience for everyone else that somehow is going to make this Christmas just be the perfect Christmas or anything in our life go that way, we are missing the power of the gospel. Because the scriptures remind us time and time again about our powerlessness Mary and Joseph teach us that in so many ways, and one of my favorites is, remember the Annunciation? When the angel comes to this young girl, 12, 15 years old, she's engaged to a guy, and he comes to her, and the angel Gabriel says, Blessed are you, Mary. i got exciting news for you. Now you can imagine being the young girl. Wow, what could be good? Oh, you get to be a single pregnant woman and carry the, a child and have everybody laugh and, and whisper behind your back. But in the process, you will be giving birth to the Savior of the world. What does Mary say in her powerlessness and her submission to God? I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be according to your word. See, our powerlessness in our relationship to God takes us to a different place, and that is our submission to God and his will. Our realization that if we are not in control, that we need to turn our lives over to one who was in control. I don't think anything in my life taught me about my powerlessness as much as my father's Alzheimer's. My mom and dad were living with us in Whitensville for a few months when my mom suffered a severe stroke. She was in our home for a while, and we ended up having to put her into a nursing home, and they couldn't fly back to the Dakotas because my mom was never cleared for A trip back, the doctor said she wouldn't make it. Therefore, my dad was now living with us, and his Alzheimer's was getting progressively worse. However, we had it worked out where each day my dad would get up and would visit my mom at the nursing home. He was not a patient there or a resident there there. However, he used it as an opportunity to be with his wife, and it was a great experience for my mom and dad to be able to be together. But one of the problems is if you're dealing with somebody whose dementia is continuing to get worse, there were things you just could not explain to my father and have them accept them and have them enacted. And one day, the head of the nursing came to me and said, Stan, I'd like to have you talk to your father. He is interfering when they come in to give your mom her medicine. The answer, of course, is distract my father and do your job. But that's not what they wanted me to do. They wanted me to convince my father to quit interfering. And he said, my father has Alzheimer's. There's nothing I can convince him of. No, we want you to tell your father when the nurses come in to just leave them alone. And finally I said, okay. I said, Daddy, come out here in the hall. And the nurse was there. And I said, this nice lady is telling me that when they're giving medicine to mommy... Sometimes you're like getting in the way. Would you just please just sit down? And and he goes, oh, I would never do that. I am so sorry. And he turned and he walked back in and he sat down. And I, I turned to her. I said, there, are you happy? She said, yes, thank you. I said, he doesn't remember the conversation. My father has Alzheimer's. I then turned to my dad and I said, Daddy, let's go out to lunch. And it was at that moment I realized powerlessness. Even the head of the nursing in a nursing home. Wanted somehow control over a person that you could have no control over. My life and our family's life was about accepting that, not somehow thinking we could manipulate or change that. Life gets better. When we can accept the fact that we do not have power. We cannot control situations. We cannot control people, places, or things. Mary and Joseph understood that from the beginning. They were living as Jews in the first century, occupied by the Roman government with the most powerful man on the throne, who at any moment could declare a census, and people had to obey. But the thing is about our powerlessness, if we look back at the story and the birth of our Savior and seek to say, okay, I enter into this season and I cannot make everybody happy. It doesn't matter what I do. I can't figure it all out to to get everything perfect. So I will accept that. But then there's a second thing that then we start coming to terms with and that's God's purpose. Once we can accept our powerlessness, We can now accept the fact that God, who has all power, who is the creator of the heavens and the earth, will bring purpose out of every situation. That's why in verse 4 we're told that Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was in the house of David. 700 years earlier, Micah the prophet had predicted a ruler to come from Bethlehem. The Messiah, we were told in the Old Testament, was to be a ruler in the line of King David, who, of course, was from Bethlehem. And now a census was declared in which the emperor thinks that he's doing something for one reason, to collect taxes and to get more money from this little Judean province, but the census led Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem. In other words, God used the census for his higher purposes, even though Augustus, who thought he was doing one thing, became part of God's plan for something amazing to happen in the world. What Augustus had intended for himself, God used for a higher purpose. Come to terms, folks, with our powerlessness, and now start looking at what God is doing. Once we realize we don't have to create it all and we don't make, have to make it all work and we don't have to have everything happen in our image or the way we would like it to be and we can turn it over to the one who's ultimately sovereign, who's God, then we discover something amazing that God brings good out of even the bad things that happen in our life. No matter how awful something is and there are some awful things that happen and this last year I've seen members of this congregation go through stuff that no one should have to go through. But even in the worst of those situations, we can see God working. Not that he makes the things happen. Not that God even wants the things to happen. But the promise of Romans 8.28, in everything, God works for good. No matter how bad it may seem to me, no matter how miserable or awful, no matter how much I would have liked to fight against my father's Alzheimer's, I saw all kinds of amazing good things come out of it and transformation in our family, and transformation in my life. It always makes me think of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of my favorite theologians from the 20th century, who spent his last two years in prison because he was a German pastor who returned to Germany, even though he had two other jobs offered to him, one in New York City and one in London, England, that he could have on his own willpower taken, but he believed that God was leading him back to Germany, and he was there for the purpose of taking down the German government, and getting rid of Adolf Hitler. And unfortunately, what happened in his life is he ended up being arrested and spent his last two years in prison. Ended up dying as an obscure pastor. And if that was all the story was, it would be a story of powerlessness. But during that time, he wrote to his good friend, Eberhard Betke, a series of letters. And upon his death, Betke decided to publish those letters. They're called Letters and Papers from Prison. And they became one of the most important documents of understanding Christianity in the later 20th century that's ever been written. He talked about religionless Christianity, getting away from all of the trappings and realizing that our life is about a relationship with Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. All the awful stuff that happened to Bonhoeffer was awful. It's bad and nobody can turn it any other way. But what God did with that is used him and his work and his thoughts and even that two-year period of time to write some of the most important theological discourse that's ever been written. You see, what Mary and Joseph discovers is what we all need to discover. Once we can accept our powerlessness and once we can turn our lives and will over to God, even though we can't have control, God will bring a purpose out of everything. It's a matter of faith and trusting. And ultimately, it's also a matter of discovering what really matters. Because so often, the reason we get ourselves in a frenzy at the holidays is, let's be honest, folks, it's stuff that really doesn't matter anyhow. Years later, is anybody really going to remember whether you got them that gift or not? Years later, is anybody really going to remember whether that meal was exactly the way we wanted it to be? Or when our days or weeks are just so busy and hectic and we just take on one more thing for the only purpose of making other people happy, do you think 10 years from now they're going to remember whether we came to that event or not anyhow? Once we can get to the point that we understand that we're powerless and God's working for a higher purpose, we discover what really matters and start focusing on that. And that's why I love the last verse that we have in our text this morning. And Mary gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger. Let me translate: A healthy baby boy was born. A healthy baby boy was born. Isn't that what ultimately matters? In the end, let's we we go to the Savior part, of course. But at that moment in Mary and Joseph's life, do you think any of the other stuff mattered? Do you think they really cared at that point about the census or where they were or the donkey ride or where they were sleeping that night or anything else? All they did is they looked at what mattered and they gave thanks to God for this precious child that was now in their arms. The Bible tells us that he was born in a barn. It was probably a barn that belonged to a relative or a friend. I can explain that elsewhere, but they didn't have inns the way we think of them today. The inns was really where people would stay with people that they knew. And then he was in a manger. And we know what a manger is. A manger is a feeding trough, a place where the horses and all the animals would have eaten. Now, if Mary and Joseph were trying to create the perfect nursery, now, I don't know if I've told you that I'm a grandfather, and you know, one of the projects the Cushing's took on was creating the perfect nursery. That's what we do. Because we think the nursery is so important, and it is, but it's not as important as having the healthy child. It's about that baby who is being born. So Mary and Joseph knew what really mattered in life. They made the most out of everything else. The result was not just the birth of a military leader, but the Savior of the world. Luke says that the shepherds who came, and we'll read that another week, that they rejoiced, and that Mary herself just pondered it all. Can't you imagine her just sitting there thinking, wow, this is all interesting. (laughs) I'm 15 years old, I'm going to be married, I'm the mother of a child that I don't know how I got pregnant, they had a census, I got sent to a place, and I'm in a smelly barn, but my baby's healthy. Wouldn't we love to know what Mary was thinking about? But what we do know she was thinking about is what really matters. Which takes me back to Clark Griswold. At the end of the movie, he says these words. Remember, kids, all that matters tonight is not turkeys or bonuses or trees. All the stuff we focus on, isn't it? All the things that we make so important and the scripture reminds us that's not what life is about. Life is not about having the perfect tree, or going to every event, or putting on the greatest meal, or providing every single gift that we can't afford so we're still paying for it next July and the July after that, but rather it's realizing what Mary and Joseph teach us. For Mary and Joseph show us the perfect Christmas, the first Christmas. But it's not perfect because we make it perfect. Because every single thing that happened to them, they had no power and no control over. But it's perfect when we realize that Christmas is about God's love for us. Do you hear me? For God so loved this world that he gave his only son. It's perfect when that's what we make the center of Christmas. God's love for every single one of us. In realizing that God loves us so much that he gave us his own son. And he didn't bring him into some fancy, amazing $2,000 a night hotel. He allowed him to be born in a way in which no one would think he lords it over, or thinks he's better than us. He was born in a barn, laid in a feeding trough, and a healthy baby began his journey on this earth as God living among one of us who was the Savior of the world. It's hard to fathom and hard to imagine, but let's remember that this Christmas. And if we do, we will discover the perfect Christmas. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to get away from all the things that preoccupy us and help us to get our mind back focused on what truly matters. As we close our service and we sing our last song, remind us of the importance of trusting in you, of getting away from all the things that can disturb us and can mess with our minds and our emotions during this season and focus on what truly matters. Mary and Joseph had no control, but they had something far more important than that. They had faith in God. They knew they could trust you, and they knew that no matter what happened, as Mary herself declared, here I am, your servant. May it be according to your word. Help us begin this December that way and live it out that we could find not only the perfect Christmas, but more importantly, the Savior who loves each one of us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.